Luke's aim in his gospel is to help us think deeply and thoughtfully about the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And it's a question that's been steadily rising to the surface of the gospel for some time now. So if you're just joining us in Luke's gospel, I just want to share a couple of ways this question's already been asked. Uh, some of the religious leaders and critics of Jesus in chapter 5 say, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? They were obviously British. Uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, when the disciples witness Jesus calm a storm on the sea, they say, who is this? He commands the winds and the water and they obey him. And then in the chapter we're currently in, the question even extends to political powers. Herod asks, who then is this I hear such things about? So from religious leaders to political leaders to fishermen on sabbatical, the mystery surrounding Jesus' identity, Luke wants us to see this, transcends all social barriers. That the answer to the question has implications for every sphere and realm on the face of the earth. And now at this point of the Gospel of Luke, the answer to this question is beginning to take shape. Jesus, he's just asked his disciples, point blank, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah of God. And it's the beginning of the right answer. And as we've, but as we've talked about, there is a gap between what Messiah means to Peter and what Messiah means to Jesus. And so Jesus offers a redefinition. He tells Peter and the disciples listening in, it's been preserved for us, that the Messiah came to be rejected, suffer and die and be raised to life. That this is how the everlasting kingdom of God will be established on earth. Not through the zeal of a political Messiah with military might, but through the suffering and death and resurrection of the Messiah. And this was not what anybody was thinking about the Messiah at that time and place, not even close. And so it takes some time for the disciples of Jesus to come to terms with what Jesus is saying about himself. And so the Gospel of Luke, it reminds us that when it comes to finding an answer about who is Jesus, we will be really slow on the uptake. It's going to take us a little while to truly see who Jesus is because all kinds of barriers can get in the way. We might project things onto Jesus. Culture might tell us different ideas about Jesus. But what we have to work to do is to learn how to truly hear Jesus on his, his terms and listen to what he says about himself. And after this exchange between Jesus and Peter, he says something rather ominous, doesn't he? Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so it kind of sounds like he's saying, look, I'm going to return to earth before you die. But that's not actually what Jesus says. This is actually a segue. This is not about the kingdom coming at his return. He's talking about what we now call the transfiguration. The disciples are about to see something that will continue to fill in the picture of who is Jesus. He's the expectation-defying Messiah, but what they're about to see is he's also so much more. So open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. I, I just want to dwell in this moment today. I don't have three points. I don't have a big idea. I just have the passage, and we're going to walk through it. Sound good? Chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. 
About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. I grew up in Victoria. Anybody else? Gordon Head? Anybody? Just me. So in my neighborhood, there's a mountain called Mount Doug. Uh, it's more like an overstated hill. I mean, in the terms of mountains, it is like a wrinkle on a freshly pressed shirt. But this was my place of solace growing up. So almost every day as a child, most weekends even growing up, I would go into the woods of Mount Doug and ascend the hill. And I would be among the ferns and the arbutus trees. I would chart off new paths. But whenever I reached the top of the mountain, my perspective always changed. Because from up there, I could see my home. I could see my school. I could see the park that I would go to. I could see the streets that I walked every day. I could see it all, but from a totally different vantage point. And so no matter who I was, no matter what I was doing, Mount Doug was a thin place. It was this place where the ordinary became unordinary and where reality started to feel more real. Whenever a mountain is mentioned in scripture, we're meant to pay attention to the geography. Mountains in scripture are thin places. Heaven intersects with earth on mountains, and earth intersects with heaven. The one doesn't overpower the other, but they exist together, and God becomes more palpable and more evident. The ordinary becomes less ordinary, and reality becomes more real. Jesus, he takes Peter, James, and John, this trio, up a mountain into a thin place. And when they arrive, Luke writes in verse 29, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. So Jesus changes. This is why we say he, he was transfigured right before the disciples' very eyes. But this change, this transfiguration, it's not just for show. Jesus isn't just doing a neat little parlor trick here. Jesus, his physical, visible appearance changes, but it's more like an undressing, an unveiling of what's really beneath the skin. So Jesus, he's promised his disciples, they're going to see the kingdom of God, and now they're getting a glimpse of it because they're beholding the king of the kingdom. You see, the glory of an earthly king would be impressive enough. I mean, they'd be decked out in fine fabrics, jewels and gold, everything, you know, the crown. But Jesus, he has this glory that transcends the glory of an earthly king and all of human splendor together. You see, there's nothing ordinary or common about this moment in Scripture. It actually defies what we would consider, you know, normal or reasonable, doesn't it? Which can lead us to ask, did this really happen? Did this really happen? And look, I'm not going to ask you to suspend your sense of reality. Instead, I'm going to ask you to reconsider your sense of reality. Because most of us assume that the way things are done in the present are better than how things are done in the past, right? And this is not always the case. Uh, do you know much about windmills? Anybody? Great. I didn't either until I met my friend John. Uh, John, he's passionate about ending hunger in Africa by teaching families and villages how to grow food. But where did he start? By teaching people how to build windmills so they can have a consistent source of water all year round. You can look up their good work, Africa Windmill Project. The problem is that windmills can be really sophisticated, and John knew that this could be a challenge for them to build. So when he was back home in Orlando, John decided to build a full-size windmill, think like classic Dutch windmill on rolling hills, 
full-size windmill in his backyard. <laughs> Neighbors loved him. It was massive. It was amazing. But what he realized is this cannot be recreated in Malawi. They don't have the resources. So what do you do? John went backwards instead of forwards. He looked at a second century Arabic design, and then he readapted it so it could be built out of whatever common materials could be found in Malawi. And it's been a remarkably successful innovation, transforming entire villages, being adopted formally by the universities there. It's been called innovative, but it's actually an old and archaic technology. Now, are there more sophisticated windmills than these? Yeah. Does that make them better? No. And in fact, if the sophistication makes them inaccessible to those who most need it, the windmill is utterly useless. So what does that have to do with our passage? What does windmills have to do with miracles? Well, since the scientific revolution, our understanding of the universe and our world, it's become far more sophisticated, and it's a good thing. But we should not let our sophistication blind us to realities that have been common to human experience and continue to be common around the world to things like miracles. They might sound simplistic. They might sound uninformed. They might sound like the experience of lesser minds. But those who testify to having experienced miracles throughout history, throughout the world today, they know that they've seen the ordinary become unordinary and that reality became more real. And so the account of miracles in Scripture are not due to ignorance or easily manipulated minds. It's testimony. And it needs to be heard on its own terms, not rewritten to be more acceptable to our Western minds and assumptions. And because, just because our you know, worldview, our Western worldview, has become more sophisticated, it doesn't mean that the old way of approaching the world was wrong. And in fact, the old way of approaching the world may have something to say to us today. So Jesus, he removes the veil between heaven and earth. And as he does, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So Jesus' face changes. Super curious about that, but we don't get any details. Instead, what do we get? Like a fashion show, a description of his clothing. Like, why talk about the clothing rather than the face? Like, come on, Luke. Why the focus on clothing? Well, clothing matters. A few years ago, I bought um, an Illuminati t-shirt. And I did this because I'm a part of the Illuminati, a secret organization that controls the world. Uh, not really, but maybe Illuminati. But I did it solely because I thought it would be funny. Well, guess what? When you walk in public with an Illuminati shirt on, it is not funny. So I had to retire the t-shirt. Clothing communicates. Pastors wearing Illuminati t-shirts communicate something that you don't want to communicate. Doctors wear scrubs. Wedding people wear wedding garments. Top hats, monocles, plaid. You know, they all say something. And here's the thing. Luke doesn't mention clothing very often in his gospel. So when he does, it's because it's important. He doesn't describe every person's wardrobe. When Jairus approaches Jesus, Luke doesn't say Jairus fell at Jesus' feet. He was wearing sandals designed by John Fluvog and a flowing burnt maroon robe by Coco Chanel matched with a perfect golden tunic by Vera Wang. Right? No, because that's not how he looked, and if he did, he would be baller, but it would not be helpful or useful information. And so when Luke mentions clothing, 
When he mentions a detail like that, instead of his face telling us about the clothing, it's to tell us something. There's a significance to it. Clothing matters. And when it comes to Jesus and what Jesus wore, there's actually only three times, four-ish times in Luke's gospel where Luke pays attention to what Christ is wearing. And the first is when Jesus is born. Luke writes, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. You see, you might expect the Messiah to be born in a palace and wrapped in the finest clothing, but Jesus enters the world in rags. He comes into the world just as the massive majority of the world do. And when Jesus dies, Joseph of Arimathea, he takes Christ's body and he wraps it in linen cloths. And linen was a symbol of wealth. But these same linens are left in the empty tomb when Jesus rises. And friends, believe me, I have a whole sermon on that later in Luke. So between his birth in rags and his death in fine linens, Jesus' clothes become as bright as a flash of lightning. So what does it say? Well, flashes in lightning throughout Scripture are a sign of God's presence. This is true of God's presence when ancient Israel meet God at Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments. It's true of the vision of the throne of God that we have in the book of Revelation. Jesus lifts the veil, and the disciples see that within this humble human frame is the glory of God, is the presence of God. They see Christ's pure radiance, his otherness, his total and complete holiness. In other words, the one who's born in rags and buried in linens is actually dressed in the apparel of God. And this glory, it's not external to Jesus. It's not something coming from outside of him, but what's clear is it's actually coming from within him. This glory shines forth from him. And so Peter, James, and John, they get to peer into the mystery of the incarnation. They see that Jesus is fully human and fully God, entirely like us and yet entirely unlike us too. And as Jesus is transfigured, we read in verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Now that's remarkable, isn't it? That's something. As far as Jewish celebrities go, this is A-list. But how did the disciples know, like, who was with Jesus? Like, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? You know, who knows? Most scholars say name tags, but I think it was an icebreaker. You know, let's take turns, share your name, share your, share your definitive prophetic moment and favorite food. Hi, I'm Moses. I led Israel through the Exodus, and I know this is the spiritual answer, but I really liked manna. <laughs> Hi, I'm Elijah. I guess if I had to pick one moment, it was killing all the prophets of Baal. And uh, I guess, I don't know, the bread the angel gave me at the meal. But I digress. They appear, Moses and Elijah. And you could say many, many things about their significance and their presence. But for now, let's just say here is Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus. And what's easy to overlook is that Jesus is not in conversation with the dead. Let that sink in. Moses and Elijah died a long time ago. This is not necromancy. Jesus, he's conversing with the living. Moses and Elijah, they're not bound to their graves. They are alive. Life continues after death, even as they await the final resurrection of their earthly bodies. 
But what are they talking to Jesus about? This is the important piece. Look at verse 31. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So Jesus' departure, that's the topic of conversation. The Greek word for departure is literally exodus. So you see, all that God set out for Moses and Elijah to accomplish, it was to pave the way for this departure. Moses led Israel through the exodus, their liberation out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And all of that was actually just preparation for Christ's departure. He's paving the way of a new exodus, his departure. Because through his death and resurrection, Jesus, he's going to lead the people of God through a new exodus, through a new liberation, through a new redemption into the life of God. And I think the topic of their conversation, it's immensely important for the disciples and it's immensely important for us because it tells us something. If you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see the glory of Jesus, you need to think about his departure. You need to think about his exodus. You need to face his rejection and suffering and death on a cross in Jerusalem. Because Jesus, he did not come to dazzle He came to save and redeem, and he's going to lead us out of slavery to the powers of sin and evil and suffering and death and lead us into freedom and liberation and life. Let's not forget Peter and James and John. They're here. They're listening to Moses and Elijah and Jesus have this conversation. Luke tells us in verse 32 that Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but then they became very awake, fully awake. So this isn't a dream. And they saw his glory and two men standing with him. So they see it, and they get to listen in on this conversation. And remember, only eight days ago, Jesus said that you're, you're going to see the kingdom of God, and now they're seeing Jesus, and they're seeing Moses and Elijah. But Jesus also told them eight days ago that the Messiah would be rejected, suffer, and die. And now the two greatest prophets of Israel's history are with him, and that's what's on their mind. They can't escape it. It seems like, all right, the disciples are finally going to get it. It's going to sink in. It's going to make sense. The Messiah, he has to be killed and be raised to life. But then, verse 33, and Moses and Elijah were leaving Jesus, and Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke adds a parenthetical note. He did not know what he was saying. It looks like it's going to sink in, but it doesn't. Now try to imagine this if you can. You're on top of a mountain with a great composer. You've been learning from them about the glories of music, and suddenly like Mozart and Beethoven appear, and they're standing with you. Or a more rock and roll experience, Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain. But whoever it is, like the greats, they appear. But rather than say like, wow, hi, like I guess you guys are composing something. Like, can I hear it? Your response is, hey, we should hang out here and camp. I mean, it's such a West Coast answer. Peter would be great in Vancouver. So to be fair, Luke wants us to know he did not know what he was saying. Fair enough. I mean, how do you know what to say in that situation? But it shows us that Peter, along with James and John, they're still not getting it. They can't quite hear what Jesus is composing. They can't quite hear 
what Elijah and Moses are talking to him about, this departure. The discussion is about Jesus' departure. What does Peter focus on? Arrival. The focus is on him leaving, and Peter wants to talk about staying. And so Peter and the disciples, they see. They're seeing all of this, but they don't understand. And Peter may have just said to Jesus eight days ago, you are the Messiah of God. And now he, James, and John, they see the glory of Jesus, but the impending departure of Jesus, it's still doesn't make sense. They can't hear it. And so we read in verses 34 through 36, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. So since their sense of sight is failing them, God speaks, and he overshadows them with a cloud, and this is a powerful image. When God took Moses and the people out of uh, Egypt into the wilderness of Sinai, when he's about to reveal his word and law to them, what does it say? Exodus 19, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So God confirms that his presence is this thick cloud. And so what does this say on the mountain? God is here. And God speaks. And what does God say? This is my chosen son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's such a simple and powerful message. Peter has said to Jesus, you are the Messiah of God, and it's true But God fills in this picture further. This is my son, my chosen son, my beloved son. You'll notice it sounds a lot like Jesus' baptism, if you're familiar with that passage. There God speaks over Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And God says to James, Peter, and John, I love my son. Listen to him. And then Luke adds, when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. So the disciples, they're instructed to listen to Jesus, to hear him. And then Elijah and Moses are gone, and all they see is Jesus. It's a powerful image. Listen to Jesus alone. Here's what we see. Hearing precedes seeing. Hearing precedes seeing. The disciples, they've just seen Jesus in all of his glory, haven't they? But they still don't get it. They still don't understand who he is. They need to listen to him before they finally see him and see him alone. And it raises a question for them, like, why should they listen to Jesus alone? They've spent their whole lives listening to the Hebraic scriptures, to prophets like Moses and Elijah, and Jesus but he's saying, I stand above Moses and Elijah, these exemplary figures who represent the law and the prophets respectively. You see, Moses, he ascended Mount Sinai. He receives the law. And when he came down the mountain, his face was shining with the glory of God. And so what does Moses do? He wears a veil for the sake of the people. But Jesus, he ascends the mountain not to receive the law, but to fulfill it. 
And he doesn't put on a veil, but he unveils himself so we can see his glory. Elijah, he ascended Mount Horeb. He was running away to save his life. And there on the mountain, God spoke to him about paving the way for the Messiah. But Jesus, he ascends the mountain, not to pave the way, but to walk the way that has been paved for him. And he's not trying to save his life, but he's going to lose it so that our lives can be saved. And so while the disciples are accustomed to listening to Moses and Elijah, and while they'll still need to listen to them, but through a new lens, God is clear, you need to listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. This is who Moses and Elijah are pointing to. Their entire lives are pointing to him. And here he is, God's beloved son. This was never spoken of of any prophet in Israel's history. But why this emphasis on listening? On this side of eternity, we don't get to remain in thin places forever. The disciples, they went up that mountain, they saw something profound, and then they had to come back down and live their lives. You see, we can't go from one spiritual encounter in high to another. And, and, and the truth is, some people get these experiences, and some of us, we live our whole lives, and we never experience something like this. And so we don't want to miss something in our passage. This is not about the experience. The transfiguration, all that they saw, it doesn't heal the disciples' sight. They still only see partially. It's in this incredible moment that they're told something that we can receive. Hearing precedes seeing. You need to listen up. You need to listen carefully to my son. You need to accept what he says. You need to let Jesus shape and form your ears so that you might begin to see. And in the Hebraic world, uh, listening, listen to my son. Listening is hearing and doing. Ideally, you weren't just listening to acquire information. You're listening for living so the transfiguration, it was preserved for us in Scripture, not so that we would go out and seek an ecstatic spiritual experience, but so that we could hear its message. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. This is God's beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him about what? His departure. Let Him bring you to His cross. And then our passage ends with silence. Verse 36. The disciples kept this to themselves. They did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. And so we wonder, will they listen? Will we? Luke's gospel, it's about many things, but fundamentally, it's about this question. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And as the gospel unfolds, Luke unashamedly tells us this. Only Jesus can answer that question for us. Your job isn't to figure out who is Jesus. Your job is to figure out if you'll listen to Jesus tell you who he is. Will we listen to Jesus and the answers he provides for us? And there's a lot of places we can look for answers, and it's, it's not bad to look for answers. I mean, read the scholars. Look at the arguments. Try to deconstruct all the clutter so that you can really hear what Jesus is saying. Of course we need some help and perspective when we read scripture, and you should be engaging literature and other people's opinions, but at the end of the day, it doesn't take much deconstructing to get to the simple words here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
Listen to him. What Jesus said is written down and preserved in Scripture for us. Do you listen to him there? In the passage we studied last week, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Will you listen to him? When he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it, do you listen to him? Will we listen to him as Moses and Elijah did about his departure? Will we listen to him when he says that the Messiah must be rejected and suffer and die and be raised to life? Will we listen to him on the cross when he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing? Will we listen to him and receive his words as the words of eternal life because there stand Moses and Elijah alive and well? Will we receive those words of eternal life from Christ? Friends, God opened the heavens and sent his son, his chosen son, his beloved son, to stand among us on the earth. He says, listen to him. Jesus died and was raised and he ascended to heaven and he sent his spirit and we're told that Jesus will return. But when he returns, he's returning in judgment. He's returning with fire. Fire that will remake this into a new heavens and a new earth. Today, now is the time of salvation. Today, if you hear your voice, don't harden your heart. Salvation is is wide and extensive. It's for any and all. In Scripture, it says slave or free, male or female, Greek or Jew. Essentially, God shows no partiality and desires that all would be saved. Will you listen to him? Will you listen? There's a hymn with these words, without money and without price, why would you spend your life except for the Lord? We can't truly see who Jesus is unless we're listening to him. And there's one last thing I want to say. Jesus asked his disciples point blank, who do you say that I am? And he's going to ask each of us that question. But what was he doing before he decided to ask his disciples that question? Luke writes, he was praying. And before Jesus was transfigured, what was he doing? Luke writes, he was praying. And so just as listening precedes seeing, so does praying need to precede our listening. So friends, let's pray. Let's pray so that we can listen and truly see the Lord.